Global Voices on Taiwan. Welcome to Global Voices on Taiwan. I'm Rath Wang, a news producer and host. Hello, everybody. I'm Vincent Chow. I work for the DPP as the head of our International Affairs Department. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be exploring with you on how does latest world events from near and far impact Taiwan and how this island nation shakes the world. We invite international journalists, experts, and policymakers to talk about Taiwan and to share their thoughts on current events here. Joining us today is Bethany Allen Abrahamian the author of Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World, making this year's Financial Times and Schroeder's Business Book of the Year list. Bethany's views are shared with global think tanks and is widely known for her decades-long investigative reporting on Chinese government operations. She is currently now based in Taipei. Welcome to the podcast, Bethany. Thanks so much for having me. In your book, you go into great detail on how the Chinese Communist Party has leveraged growing economic power to coerce companies and governments around the world to push its political narrative. Given that Taiwan is the top target of Chinese disinformation and intimidation, how do we see that happening here as we speak? Um, well, the uh, as you said, Taiwan is ground zero for all kinds of Chinese Communist Party um, covert and overt influence. And what my reporting has looked at and what my book looks at is how the Chinese government projects power beyond its borders. So when it comes to disinformation or being the target of United Front work uh, abroad or economic coercion or diplomatic coercion, I mean, Taiwan is where they... They started. Taiwan is how Beijing has kind of figured out how to do this. And it's, as you said, the top target. So when it comes to economic coercion, it's interesting because if you look at sort of the early to mid 2000s, we see that um, Beijing would was kind of the, the carrot approach. So they would, uh, you know, very sort of in a very targeted way offer like, you know, subsidies or like um, preferential um you know, import policies for like very targeted areas for a certain industries for, for certain farmers, for example, in certain districts that they wanted to swing one way or the other when they voted. But now what we're seeing uh, is is the opposite. So, you know, with um, various kinds of, the, you know, fruit import bans and stuff, it's a stick approach. So when Taiwan takes certain policies, well, we're going to punish you this way. And just this year, we've seen, is it this year that there was the ban on the Taiwan Pizio, not letting Taiwanese beer in? Taiwan beer, yeah. yeah, Taiwan beer. Yeah, Taiwan beer, not letting that into China. Of course, the very famous pineapple ban a, a few years ago. That was really interesting. International media loved that story. There were so many, there were so many articles about how Taiwanese people were banding together to save the pineapple farmers. Um, we had Japan and had like some people in the U.S. also help us. Pineapple cakes and freedom wine from Australia. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of calories in there, actually. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, one thing that the Chinese government um, has allowed Taiwan to do is to, to have economic relations with other countries, unofficial economic ties. And, you know, Taiwan has unofficial um, embassies in many countries. Often they're called economic and cultural offices. But what we've seen uh, in recent years is a, is a further narrowing of that space. And so the Chinese government now has less and less tolerance for other countries changing the status quo, so trying to create closer trade ties with Taiwan, um, and I think that that, you know, places downward pressure on Taiwan's ability to have stronger economic ties with the rest of the world. But overall, I think Taiwan still is in a good position 
with trying to strengthen trade ties or have trade ties with the rest of the world. Bethany, I think you raised a couple of important issues in there. The first one is disinformation uh, and Chinese information campaign against Taiwan. Second one is economic coercion. So you mentioned sanctions. Um, and there's been so many sanctions now that people actually can't recall like which um, sanction the pineapples or beer was part of and so forth. And the third one was uh, pressure on our international space. Essentially. And I wanted to go into a bit more detail on each of these issues, starting with disinformation. And I'm curious. I mean, um, you've reported on issues around the world. You focus on China. You focus on a region. You recently returned from travel abroad. I mean, what is your view on how democracies can make ourselves more resilient to information campaigns by authoritarian actors? Because I think one thing that we've seen here in Taiwan is that there's a lot of interest in learning about um, what Taiwan is going through and sort of the best um, actions that Taiwan has taken in response. And to be honest, I don't think there is a perfect formula right now. Uh, but I'm curious from your perspective as an international journalist, what are some of the steps democracies can take in general to make our societies more resilient? Yeah, um, I think that one of the most important steps is to have regulations um, that require transparency on social media platforms. Uh, so uh, this is something that Twitter used to have, and then Elon Musk um, took it down. But uh, but it was voluntary, of course, for Twitter to have, you know, this is a state-affiliated Twitter account. Um, tags yeah, tags on, this is, you know, this article is um, has a link to a, a state media account, this kind of thing, having that kind of transparency so that people using social media know where their information is coming from and have a sense if it's coming from a state-backed source. Uh, but I think a big problem in the U.S. at least is that this continues to be optional for companies to do. So does Facebook want to have a team or does it want to put resources um, into not only having this transparency, but also having resources to uncover these uh, disinformation operations and make them public and take down these accounts. So having government regulations that require this kind of require social media companies to do that, I think, is the most important step. It's difficult, I think, for some democracies to, to, to pass those kinds of laws because they're new. We're in a new situation in the world where a you know, really key part of our public dialogue is happening on company, you know, privately owned digital platforms. And so this is the regulations you need to create to keep this a healthy space are, are, are new and people need to be innovative. But uh, there's, there's many other steps as well. And civil, you know, civil society has a key role. And this is an area where Taiwan has really led a lot. You yeah. know, look at Puma Shan's work at, at, at Double Think Lab, um, you know, TT Cat. I mean, Puma Shan has gone uh, and, you know, briefed governments and, and people around the world on how Taiwan is fighting disinformation. Uh, and having um, increasing awareness in the population that there is disinformation, having fact-checking, uh, you know, organizations that provide fact-checks like that is is really important as well. But, yeah, one of the issues that we struggle with, I, I struggle personally with, is how do you counter disinformation during elections? And this isn't something, you know, elections aren't something we go into detail here in this podcast. But certainly it's a factor because so much of this disinformation is designed to benefit certain political candidates. And so it becomes easily polarized and it becomes very easy for people to say, oh, you're only fighting this disinformation or you only label this as disinformation because it's unhelpful for you personally um, in a political sense. So it becomes, I think, much more difficult in democratic societies, particularly when elections roll around simply because of the political polarization that happens then. Uh, and it becomes much more ripe for authoritarian actors to take advantage of. So I just wanted to bring that out there and Rath, turn it back to you. 
I mean, you're you're totally right about that, and this is this is something that no democracy has solved yet, yeah. uh, and I think it's actually getting worse. We're seeing it getting worse in Taiwan right now. I have been really shocked by the amount. I don't know, you know, disinformation is different from misinformation, right? right. It means it's being purposeful. Pur it's purposefully being propagated, perhaps by a state a state actor. And so it's hard for me to say when I see, you know, things like this about Taiwan, I, I can't look at it and say who's behind this. But I think one thing that has really I found I find disturbing this year in Taiwan is the number of people I've talked to who don't believe that Taiwan is even a democracy mm. because of all the, um, I think, accusations that we see uh, against politicians and and the, the sitting government, and really things that just aren't true. I mean, Taiwan is actually a very, very functional democracy, but it seems that that people are are latching on to this, these criticisms that are not legitimate. And that's that's very troubling because if people believe that their their political system isn't working or isn't working for yeah. them, they could just check out or they could, you know, more easily support radical candidates or radical measures. And honestly, that's precisely the aim of disinformation, which is to undermine trust and confidence in our government institutions and, and democracy um, in general. So, I mean, in that sense, I think what you're saying is that they've been successful to a certain degree. And I think they have. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, but again, though, it's hard to know, like, where I think, you know, where all of this is coming from. And so like in a U.S. context, I think also in, in Taiwan, what you also have is just an, an interaction between activists and politicians and social media algorithms. Uh, and so people find that if they say this thing or if they have this kind of very inflammatory language, mm -hmm. that does really well. More people listen to it. Uh, we see that, you know, in, in the U.S. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be Russian back for it to be harmful. And I think in Taiwan that happens too. I think as you mentioned in terms of... Um, democracy. Um, some people here, as you said, it's disturbing that um, people are actually believing that Taiwan is not a democracy. And Vincent mentioned earlier that that is the prime objective of the CCP and sowing um, division amongst democracies as well. But how do you see in terms of the U.S. and Taiwan and other countries working together to dispel that? Do you feel there's a messaging that could actually um, overwrite that um, disinformation or that key message that um, authoritarian regimes are trying to sow here, especially during election season? Huh, multilateral efforts to combat disinformation. That's very interesting. I haven't, I haven't really thought very much about that because I guess I see disinformation as being often it's so localized, but that's a really interesting idea. And I think it speaks to our lack of a regulatory framework for this. I mean, I'll quickly jump in and, and point to two aspects I think that would be important for us to look further into. The first one is sharing best regulatory practices, as you had mentioned, Bethany. And um, we see um, there was a bill here in Taiwan or a proposal, at least, to have some sort of regulation in terms of social media sites and that did not pass amid uh, public outcry, and there was strong public opposition, uh, mainly from opposition parties, but nevertheless from the public um, against such a proposal. Um, now, I think at the same time, however, there are democracies, very strong democracies around the world, the United Kingdom being one of them, that have looked into these bills and, and, and do see them as important uh, for ensuring uh, transparency and accountability uh, in online speech, particularly on social media sites. So is there a best practice going forward? And can this best practice be shared, um, not only across different regulatory regimes, but amongst different cultures as well? So I, I don't have an answer, but I do think that's something worth looking into. Um, the other area I would say is this, is that when governments, I think, work to dispel 
uh, disinformation becomes very easy to polarize it and pop and politicize it by saying, of course you would say that because this is, you know, against you or this is for you or something like that. But I think it becomes that argument becomes much harder to make when you're talking about um, countries dispelling cross um, country yeah. um, disinformation. For example, so if um, we have this issue, a few, had this issue a few months ago when this major newspaper published um, um, this, what was later found by the courts to be disinformation, saying that the government was um, building biological weapons and bioweapons. And this was a headline news on a major newspaper. You know, this is easily dispellable, um, not only by us, but by all the partners that we work with all the time. This phosphorus, it's irresponsible. It's fake. And ultimately, I think that lends a bit of credibility when other partners can come together and say that, no, this is absolutely not something that we think about um, at any time. Yeah. So just some thoughts. One of the recommendations I make in my book in a U.S. context um, is that, uh, so we used to have, there used to be um, something called the fairness and the fairness doctrine, mm-hmm. uh, which was law until I think around 1984. When, Reagan. Right, Reagan, he, deregulation, yeah. yeah. And that required um, news outlets and broadcasters in the U.S. to present both sides fairly. Um, and looking back on it, it seems like an overreach of government just from our from our very sort of neoliberal, very unregulated society now with the triumph of like neoliberalism around the world. That seems, oh, we, we couldn't possibly do something like that. Like there couldn't be a government law requiring news outlets to present both sides, you know, of something fairly. But actually the U.S. used to have that and we were at the time indeed a very healthy democracy. And so I, what I propose in the U.S. is to have a, um, an updated fairness doctrine that also applies to social media companies and requires them to um, uh, have algorithms that promote fair content and accurate content, uh, and that also requires them um, to take down state-backed disinformation and things like that. So I think that there are models for this, um, you know, that that are well within established norms um, of democracies. And I think what you said about multilateral debunking of disinformation is also is also helpful in an ad hoc way. Uh, I mean, just quickly to add on to that, um, you had mentioned, for example, this uh, regulation, um, and and we have it here in Taiwan with NCC and its regulations of broadcast content on television. But I think the issue is that most people consume content, especially young people today, not through television, but through the internet and right. through online sources and so forth. And none of this is, in a sense, regulated. And and maybe it shouldn't be regulated, maybe it should be regulated, but uh, the case remains, which is that you have regulations that apply to some forms and platforms of content, but not to others. And as a result, you do create this unbalanced field, whereas in television networks that you know I, I go to often, they actually take complaints quite seriously because they are afraid of NCC investigations mm. into, um, and and we saw that with, um, for example, CTI when they did this huge graph of you know them being very pro Hungary and pro KMT uh, back in the last election. You've done a lot of research, and especially on the economic coercion side. And how do you feel Taiwan should navigate that? As you mentioned, it's ground zero for Chinese influence, and. Um, from an economic aspect, do you feel um, governments like, say, the U.S. or Australia, and I think you did a bit in Africa as well, how did they um, successfully deal with this problem? Or unsuccessfully deal or with unsuccessfully it. Deal with this problem. Um, yeah, so I, I think that um, governments, uh, you know, like the U.S. and others, are really just beginning to grapple 
with the idea of a kind of a sweeping, you know, Chinese economic coercion state uh, regime, as it will. In my book, I call the way that China does this, I call it authoritarian economic statecraft, um, which uh, refers to the way that the Chinese government has actually found quite innovative ways to um, control market access and denial, you know, to, to shape behavior of governments and multilateral institutions and, and companies and pop culture and celebrities. I call it that because it's no, coercion is the negative side. We're going to ban this. We're going to block that. But there's also a, there's also a, a, a carrot you know, side of it. And so in the case of Taiwan, for example, how does the Chinese government, how has it so successfully um, poached so many of Taiwan's diplomatic partners? It's through its economy, through the wealth that China has by offering you know, infrastructure um, loans and construction projects and beneficial trade deals um, and, and things like this. And I think that the, the Taiwanese government, Tsai Ing-wen, you know, she talks about the new southbound policy, been working towards that for a long time. That's a very good policy. But the more that Taiwan can diversify away from China, you know this better than, than I, but isn't about 30% of Taiwan's economy? About 36. 36%, yeah. like pretty tightly wrapped up. Um, yeah, with the our China. bilateral trade flows go through China. Right, with yeah. the Chinese economy, yeah. Um, but, but apart from that, strengthening and further diversifying um, ties. And I, I know that this is something that it's it, it can be difficult for the Taiwanese government to do, in, you know, in a, in a unilateral sense because because of all that that pressure um, from the Chinese government. But I think further diversifying as much as possible is the the number one way to protect uh, Taiwan's economy from that. And then to raise this this issue more and more with with partners and with the U.S. and talk about explicitly we're the target of economic coercion. You're the target of economic coercion. How can we work together? And um, in my in my book, I uh, there's there's a, a number of proposals for how governments can push back against authoritarian economic coercion. And a really important one that that more and more people are talking about is something like an economic Article Five or an you know economic NATO, uh, an economic mutual defense treaty, which is the idea that like-minded partners, when any of them are under um, threat or under, you know, are, are facing this coercion from China, that they can band together to both provide emergency assistance to that country or to that sector, and then also have, you know, you know punitive measures. As we've um, seen with Lithuania. Yes. On the, on, well, that happened to, to Lithuania, but there was not, I, I don't think there was much of a concerted effort more to help done. Lithuania. It was more just Lithuania was the target of this. Um, yeah, which significantly raised the issue of this, at least in the European context, and got more European governments to really understand that this is a very serious issue. Even if Taiwan were not directly involved in this, in like, if there were some kind of mechanism or agreement or treaty, so much of China's coercion, economic coercion, or all forms of coercion relate to Taiwan. So, with the Lithuanian case, for example, Lithuania was pulled out of the um, 17 plus one group, and then it also tried, you know, worked on strengthening unofficial relations with Taiwan, and that was what triggered. You know China's secondary sanctions on Lithuanian components. So much of, of China's targets relate to Taiwan, and so I think having this kind of a, an organization could really help Taiwan, even if Taiwan isn't directly involved. I mean, I, I would also add to that as well that the depoliticization of economic sanctions is also very important because here in Taiwan, I think one recurrent problem is that when China engages in very targeted, I mean, they're very sophisticated now. I mean, they reach deep into constituencies that they want to reach into and target products coming from these constituencies, such as Sibanyuan and so forth. Um, and so to depoliticize means that this isn't against any political party or whoever's in power. This, I mean, these actions are against the people of Taiwan. 
And and the sooner people realize that, I mean, the less uh, uh, the less um, benefits this will have for the CCP, and and the less implications it will have for towards Taiwan's democracy, um, because we do need to stand together. I think on these issues, and I think on a similar vein, that is what you're talking about internationally as well, which is that countries, democracies, and particularly need to stand together and stick together when faced with Chinese economic uh, coercion. Um, I did want to ask about this economic component as well. But I, I but but because of our limited time, um, I did want to turn to the last part of what you had uh, mentioned, because you had gone into disinformation, you had gone into economic coercion, and you had gone into efforts that we can all protect, um, work to protect in terms of our democracy and Taiwan's efforts here. And, you know, I'm curious, as an international journalist uh, working in Taiwan, but having so much of your work been in the US and other places around the world, how do you, how do you rate the state of Taiwan's democracy, and um, what are efforts that can be done outside of what we've discussed to bolster Taiwan's democracy on one hand, but also to ensure more robust international support for Taiwan's democracy? Well, you have to understand that I'm coming um, to this <laughs> perspective from the United States, where our democracy is... <laughs> In real trouble um, and getting worse and worse. Uh, you know, there's an, just a terrible dysfunction in, in Congress. There's a, possi- a real possibility that we could reelect a president who is currently facing, I think, like 92 criminal charges and who tried to overthrow the government a few years ago. Um, we had a coup attempt. So uh, just from that perspective, We're not too bad, huh? Taiwan is great. <laughs> Taiwan's doing amazing. <laughs> And also, I just um, I feel like the debates here are just uh, are healthier. I, I, there is a lot of polarization, and this year I, I see it getting worse. But um, I, I think that a lot of the debates here are about legitimate issues, um, and I feel that a lot of the debates in the U.S. are about issues that we shouldn't be debating. For example, should we fund public transportation? I mean. Yes, but this is not obvious in the U.S. Taiwan has an amazing public transport, or Taipei has an amazing public transportation system. You know, you guys have like high-speed trains. Like you have a, a very popular and successful national healthcare system. So this is, this is kind of the infrastructure, you know, of a, of a country, but it also reflects a healthy political system because you can't have that if you don't have a healthy political system. Um, so I, I really do feel very optimistic, very optimistic about um, Taiwanese democracy in, in general. I am concerned about this uh, increasingly inflammatory rhetoric. Um, so yeah. you, you asked. Yeah. When I talk with, there's a, a lot of uh, Europeans here as well. Yeah, that's right. And we have, I think, so, somewhat different, just different experiences <laughs> in Taiwan because, you know, if you're from like Germany yeah. and you're coming and living in Taiwan, it's not a miracle to you that the trains run on time. <laughs> and every day I'm like, wow, <laughs> I only had to wait two minutes for the MRT. It's just like, ah, <laughs> you know. And they're like, yeah, that's normal. And I'm like, it's not normal. So, you know, I, I'm still a little bit, um, yeah. I think I probably I don't know if I view Taiwan through rose-colored glasses or or, if, or or I mean but a lot of countries in the world are not functional most countries in the world are not functional democracies so I think that what Taiwan has is very very good and I think that the civil society here is so strong mm. um, very impressive you know very very impressive uh, young people are, are I think engaged mm-hmm. in civil society engaged in um, you know, care, caring about the kind of country that Taiwan is, wanting to make it a better place. There's some like difficult generational divides. I think that Taiwan is going through some growing pains on that. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I'm very optimistic. 
barring um, the external factor of China, I'm very optimistic about the future of Taiwan. With that democracy. external factor, how do you see Taiwan actually navigating that? Um, again, I'm going to say the word successfully, but yeah. what's Raph, your we were so that? close to ending this podcast on a positive <laughs> note for once, and now you're going to bring us back to. Uh, I'm gonna, yeah, do you want to just end it here because I'm going to say something really, really depressing if I have to answer that no, question. No, we have to do depressing. We it's part to... of our podcast. Okay, that's right. Uh, this is sorry. This is this no, is really depressing. It please. is it is my opinion that there's almost nothing that Taiwan can do uh-huh. to um, to stop China from doing what it wants. Oh, that is very depressing. Yeah, <laughs> I think that only the international community can can stand in the way of China in the long run. Well, <laughs> so uh, I mean, Bethany, you've been here in Taiwan long enough to have taken off those rose tinted glasses, and I do think that you're taking Taiwanese society for all the goods and bads that we are and 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 we see every day here living in Taiwan for a, a long period of time. Uh, but you talked about many different issues, and on and on that closing note, the security issue. I do think again is what many people see in Taiwan as the most prevalent important issue of our times and how to protect Taiwan's security. And certainly you offered one perspective. I'm not saying it's inevitable that China's right. going to annex Taiwan. I am saying that by far the most important factors are beyond Taiwan's control. So yep. the international community well, needs to work by, with Taiwan by which to I make mean sure that doesn't happen. the U.S. Happen. That's really... Mm. Really, what I mean, right? Yeah. So. Well, strengthening our self-deterrence capabilities, increasing um, deterrence to costs and risks of the CCP taking action. I think all of these are actions we'll continue to take yeah. in concert with partners yeah. like the United yeah. States. Um, but on that very positive, <laughs> um, I think so. Uh, note: um, I, I we're conscious of your time, and and we are grateful that you took time out of your very busy schedule and travel schedule to come here to our podcast. So for that, uh, we are grateful. And to thank all of our audience members uh, for also joining us on Global Voices on Taiwan. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a great discussion today. Thank you, Bethany. And to ensure that you don't miss out on our exciting insights from the Silent Nation's captivating stories, make sure you subscribe on your preferred podcast or social media platform. Our full video is also up on YouTube. Thank you and see you next time. 